This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Caroline Graham has been dubbed simply the best detective writer since Agatha Christie. And, like Poirot and Miss Marple, the TV series of Midsummer Murders has a truly global audience. The first five episodes were adapted from Caroline's Chief Inspector Barnaby novels and are laced with that same compelling blend of rural English whimsy and macabre malevolence. However, the constraints of adapting a novel into a 90-minute screenplay did deprive us of Caroline's flair for writing psychological pen portraits of her characters, as well as some of the darker aspects of her novels. But now, audiobook fans can enjoy the original stories in all their unabridged brilliance, because one of the world's leading audiobook production companies, Belinda, is undertaking new recordings of all seven Chief Inspector Barnaby mysteries, with John Hopkins, who played Detective Sergeant Scott, as the narrator. At nearly 92 years old, Caroline herself is partially sighted and was recovering from a serious illness when I spoke to her earlier in the year. However, she and her son David were keen to celebrate these new recordings and to share some reminiscences about the series that made Midsummer the murder capital of the English shires. The Killings at Badger's Drift a Midsummer Murders Mystery, Book One, written by Caroline Graham and read by John Hopkins. There's something very wrong here, and I expect you to do something about it. Isn't that what the police are for? Sergeant Troy observed his breathing, a trick he had picked up from a colleague at police training college who was heavily into Tai Chi and other faddy eastern pursuits. The routine came in very handy when dealing with abusive motorists boot-deploying adolescents, and, as now, with balmy old ladies. Indeed we are, Miss, uh... The sergeant pretended he had forgotten her name. Occasionally this simple manoeuvre caused people to wonder if their visit was really worth the bother, and to drift off, thus saving unnecessary paperwork. Bell ringer. Chiming in, thought the sergeant, pleased at the speed of this connection and at his ability to keep a straight face. He continued, But are you sure there's anything here to investigate? And your friend was getting on in years. She had a fall and it was too much for her. It's quite common, you know. Rubbish. She had the sort of voice that really got up his nose. Clear, authoritative, upper, upper middle class. I bet she's ordered a few skivvies around in her time, he thought, the noun springing easily to mind. He and his wife enjoyed a good costume drama on the television. She was as strong as an ox, Miss Bellringer stated firmly. As an ox. There was a definite tremor on the repetition. Jesus, thought Sergeant Troy. Surely the old bat wasn't going to start snivelling. Mechanically, he reached for the Kleenex under the counter and returned to his breathing. Miss Bellringer ignored the tissues. Her left arm vanished into a vast tapestry bag, trawled around for a bit, then reappeared, the hand gripping a round, jewelled box. She opened this and shook a neat pile of ginger-coloured powder onto the back of her wrist. She sniffed this up each nostril, closing them alternately like an emergent seal. She replaced the box and let out a prodigious sneeze. Sergeant Troy grabbed resentfully at his papers, when the dust had settled, Miss Bellringer cried, I wish to see your superior. It would have given Sergeant Troy a great deal of pleasure to say that none of his superiors was on the premises. Unfortunately, this was not the case. Detective Chief Inspector Barnaby had just returned from holiday and was catching up on some files in his office. I won't keep you a moment, uh, said Troy, horrified to find the word madam lurking at the end of the sentence. As he knocked on Barnaby's door and entered, Troy kept his face expressionless, and his ideas regarding Miss Bellringer's degree of senility firmly to himself. 
The chief could be very terse at times. He was a big, burly man with an air of calm paternalism which had seduced far sharper men than Gavin Troy into voicing opinions which had then been trounced to smithereens. Well, Sergeant? There's an old, an elderly lady in reception, sir, a Miss Bellringer from Badger's Drift. She insists on seeing someone in authority. I mean, someone apart from myself. Caroline Graham and David Graham, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Red. So, Caroline, I grew up in a small village in West Sussex, and from the moment I read your first Chief Inspector Barnaby novel, I thought you captured the atmosphere and the intrigue of a small English village perfectly. Was there a particular place that inspired Midsummer Murders? Well, the thing is that things that inspire different scenes sort of come and go, and if they look likely, you can snatch a bit out and you've got a scene or however we're looking at it. So I can remember, Red, the, the different villages that I lived in growing up with, with Caroline in Suffolk. I can remember um, spotting various things that seemed to be taken from here and there, but, but I think the nature of a writer is they are taking from experience. And in terms of the, the settings for the books, although where you chose to set them, uh, Caroline, they're not in Suffolk, but um, I can certainly spot all sorts of things from the various villages and, and, and towns where, where I lived growing up. Yes. And those idyllic chocolate box English villages. Oh, yes. They they belie some of the darkness that goes on behind closed doors. I was reminded of the quote from the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. Oh, yes. The lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more terrible record of sin than does the beautiful countryside. It's the fact that in these isolated cottages, terrible things can happen and nobody can hear. Yes, it's rather frightening if you think about it like that. I don't know why it was important to me. I just sat down and, and thought about what brings the readers in. And it nearly always is story rather than atmosphere and setting. And I think I just hit on the right... Uh, story at the right time. I'm just jolly grateful. I remember thinking with your Barnaby and Troy characters that Troy was quite a risk at the time because he's an openly homophobic, racist and sexist police officer. Yes, he, he certainly was. He, yes. he is a wonderful character. He's a character that you love to hate, but he's also very good at his job. And... um Barnaby was a very interesting lead policeman because he's just an ordinary man that plods along yeah. and he's methodical and he makes mistakes, but he gets there in the end. So they're a pretty interesting couple of policemen, actually, for the genre of books at the time. Barnaby is very much a decent man in an indecent world, isn't he? He is impervious to being bribed, to being browbeaten. He just stands for decency and fair play. That's the word, decency, yes. Was he drawn from any particular character you had read about or encountered yourself? Well, I, I'd say uh, no. But on the other hand, things keep coming back to me, phrases or just sentences that, that really strike home. So I, I, I guess the answer to that is yes. I can remember um, Caroline was, was very pleased with her Envy of the Stranger book, which she did directly before Killings of Badger's Drift, because it had a, a, a sort of modest success. 
And her agent at the time said, because it, it was a it was a psychological thriller with a police investigation in it, her agent said, well, if you were to do a detective fiction book, I'm sure publishers could place it and promote it very effectively. And, and so she sat down with a big pile of Agatha Christie books and just chewed through them, making notes. And uh, she figured out, what will I do with this genre that will be appealing and different? Ah, right. Okay. It's, it's uh, you know, this is 40 years ago, you know. So both of us are, remember, I'm 52 and Caroline's just about to be 92. So both of us are, we are remembering back, back, back. Well, like Agatha Christie, not only are Caroline's plots fantastically clever, they're also character driven. And quite often, Chief Inspector Barnaby doesn't actually enter until relatively late in the story and that gives the reader a chance to spend time with the cast of potential murderers and you draw from a very rich palette Caroline you clearly are a very close observer of people oh I'm just nosy all writers are nosy and I've read somewhere that you said that the gift of dissatisfaction yes. is something that you find fascinating. Yes. And when one of your characters is dissatisfied with their life, that is when they tend to do something that is either bad or could rebound on them. That's absolutely the case, yes. And do you think that this dissatisfaction is the key to a good story? It is the flaw in human beings that makes them vulnerable. I, I, I just don't know. The thing is, I have the idea that everybody has got something in them of this uh, attitude of feelings. And... Uh, like you're born with blue eyes, you're also gifted with this uh, ambition to see the dark side of things. Or sheltering people who have done something because they are their son or daughter or friend. Yes. And they, they can't turn them in. Well, certainly having just reread the, the first four audio books, they are a pretty troubled and, and frustrated lot the characters they are certainly they're, are they're um yes. they're a desperate bunch you know yes. um, frustrated angry but it makes for a compelling read you know how different the people are and and how uh troubled they are how motivated they are you know you're turning the pages to find out about these people yes I they're an interesting so. lot the characters and in the face of this, you put Chief Inspector Barnaby, who, as John Nettles, who, who so famously played him in the Midsummer Murders series, says, he, he bears all his travails with an almost godlike equanimity. He's a very simple man. Yes. He, he likes to solve problems, but he doesn't like to create problems. Oh, that's a very good phrase, that. Well, thank you. <laughs> Right on the nail, you know, you've got it absolutely there. And he is far happier tending the plants in his garden than having to interview the villains of Midsummer. Yes. And nature features very prominently in your books. I, I get the impression that you are a nature lover. Do you have your own garden? Yes, I, finally, I do. <laughs> And were you a keen gardener yourself? Well, I used to garden with my dad when I was a little girl. And uh, so I kind of plod along a bit, but I, I do so feel linked to nature. In a way, I don't feel linked uh, to other atmospheres. Yes, th there's a simplicity to the cycle of nature that shows how 
complicated human beings can be sometimes. Yes, yes. It certainly brings out the best and the worst in people, uh, uh, you know, criminal behaviour. And plants and nature play a central part in your first Chief Inspector Barnaby novel, The Killings at Badger's Drift. Yes, that's right. Was that a story that had been lingering in the back of your mind for a long time, or did it come to you on a walk through the woods? Certainly. I was drawn in the woods back up to where I live frequently. I used to go perhaps to the very centre where there's a fallen tree stump and thick with the leaves, birds singing. It was quite a you know, profound experience uh, for me to just sit in the heart of the wood. Yes, and I think that comes out beautifully, that it can be a place full of solace, but it can also be a place where bad things happen. Yes, yes. That's a, that's a good way of putting it, yes. Well, it, what is it? It's a world, it's life, uh, you know. And mm. so, uh, yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in people, uh, some of the most attractive, appealing uh, people I've met. Uh, well, if you looked at what they were up to, you'd run away. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I suppose that's where the shock comes from. We don't expect bad things to come from beautiful things. Yes, this is very true. Uh, and yet Shakespeare all the way down, you know. Now, the other great love of... Chief Inspector Barnaby's life, apart from his garden, is his family, especially his daughter, Cully, who is an actress. She's very feisty and has a penchant for rather outlandish clothes. Firstly, where did her name come from? Oh, dear. (laughs) People have asked me this quite often. But I simply don't know. I've, uh... So I can probably jog your memory there because the name Cully, the, both Caroline and myself first heard this name. It was uh, somebody on the street's daughter had this amazing name. Oh. And and it just got written in, into the book. Um, the, the actual Cully, she's, she's nothing like the character in the book. But Caroline used to be an actress herself. And I spotted... A lot of the young Cully, it felt to me anyway, like your love of the theatre and your experience of the theatre, you seem to be uh, drawing on your own experience to render Cully uh, so uh, convincingly to me. So believable, yes. I've read about your early life, Caroline, and we will talk about that a bit later in the interview. But I, I did wonder if Cully was in part drawn from yourself. You clearly did not suffer fools gladly, and there are some pictures of you that show that you were quite a snappy dresser in your youth. Oh, my youth, eh? I don't... <laughs> I'm sure you still are now. Uh, 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 yes. So I can remember um, growing up, in the 1970s, we were just the two of us, my mother and I, and uh, we had no money. You know, we were absolutely, you know, I used to go out and, and sort of gather bits of wood out the fields that burn on the fire sort of thing. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that in the, the village where we were at the time, um, there's a lot of well-to-do people. That that village was a, a little badger's drift of, it, of its own. But anyway... Um, they had jumble sales and the, the, the sort of well-to-do would just chuck out all their old garments. And of course, we, we'd go down there and sift through it. My mother had such an eye for a, a label and a beautiful outfit, you know, even though we had nothing. Still, she would look great, always. And Cully has a love of second-hand vintage clothes that she's picked up for a snip too so I suppose that that's fed into that as well yes yes 
saw something uh, faintly odd uh, about her appearance it's, in some way. I mean, it might be very, very, you know, a proper mac, you know, a scarf and proper shoes and so on. And yet there's a sort of antique spirit in there somewhere that she produced a, a hideous brooch, which uh, she wears as a joke or that sort of thing, pulling from both legs. And she, of course, is the only one in the family who speaks up about quite how dreadful Joyce, Tom Barnaby's wife, yeah. Cully's mother's cooking is. Joyce is an otherwise perfect character, but her cooking is terrible. Well, Barnaby struggles with it every day and he still can't quite believe it's as awful as it is. So, <laughs> we're, we're well away on that one, I think. Are you a decent cook yourself? Oh, medium. You know, I'm a brilliant with a tin opener. Uh, uh, that's my favourite <laughs> for cooking, yes. Yeah, I would say having grown up with Caroline, um, her cooking was not her strong point. But if you can write like her, who cares about cooking, you know? But um, I did learn to, to uh, make things for myself sooner rather than later, you know? And you took quite an active role in putting together the Chief Inspector Barnaby books, I understand. Whilst Caroline wrote them all, you were involved both as a first reader and in contributing a few ideas as well? In a very small way. So how it would work. So the first book, I had very little to do with the Kinnings of Badger's Drift. Um, but it was such a success so quickly, Caroline was immediately set to task. Um, Please produce another one of these. But her interest is in the wonderful characters that she renders so compellingly. Um, and she would initially she'd get stuck and uh, talk through things with me. And I'd say, oh, well, maybe they could do that. And then as the books progressed, I, I would sort of come up with more plot ideas as feedback. Yes. Oh, you were a, a godsend, David. You really were. And also, you were the first person to say, no, you can't do that. Just two pages ago, he was on a steamer going up the river on the tent. <laughs> I thought, oh, blimey, it's more to this writing lot than I thought. <laughs> I took it from there, really. I know that you used cardboard figures of your characters to move them around to, yes. to know where they were located yes uh, it's if you physically could see actually see each figure if it's just a, a little statues you know sort of two feet high then it's realer it's more real to you is that something that grew from your work in the theatre, knowing where people need to be positioned, working with the character to, to place them in the plot? Yes, it is. Didn't you say you started off, before you were an, an actor, you started off with stage management? Yes, it's, a, it's down as ASM, Assistant State stage manager and that's the uh, well it's the bottom of the theatre ladder and you just have to hang on and climb up a step at a time. I was very very fortunate the people I met were not only nice people but influential so I really went out there. And you ended up on the stage yourself? Yes oh gosh I remember feeling the wings and uh Oh, I, I simply got so wound up and I ended up jumping up and down in the wings and somebody had to leave me quietly away and shut me up. And I believe that as part of the research for the second Chief Inspector Barnaby novel, yeah. Death of a Hollow Man, which is set in a theatre, you joined a theatre production. Yes, I did. Yes, there was a, a, small, a small group and I... I said, I'll do anything. I just want to be in a, in a company for a few performances and to listen backstage to what people are saying. But I've always loved the theatre. Mm -hmm. 
always, you know, my mum took me uh, to see Red Riding Hood. I must have been seven, perhaps, or eight. And I dreamt about it for weeks, and I used to go back to where I saw it and thought it might come again. Of course, it never did, but uh, that's how it is. And you worked in the theatre for many, many years, and then in... 1991, I think, got an MA in Theatre Studies. Yes, that's right. That was at Birmingham University. And, and David Edgar, who we know, is a smashing writer. Uh, it was his class. And I was very, very pleased uh, that they had room for me. And throughout those years, you were writing screenplays as well for television. Yes. Uh, uh, one or two were uh, adaptions. But it's a very different technique. I mean, television and film are closer than radio uh, and film. So it's quite a different discipline. And I enjoy working with it. I, I wrote pretty quickly. Uh, I don't pretend that any of them are more fascinating than they are. Uh, you know, I try to write people who looked and sounded like real people. And I suppose, of course, this is the beauty of working with actors. Actors are taken from all walks of life. So you get a very good cross-section of society. And yet actors quite often also have quite fragile egos. Yes, well, it's a, a risk-taking business. Actors, you, you just have to... Take what's there in front of you and in the back of your head, of course, and just wrestle with it until something that looks perfectly straightforward and plain actually yields up a lot more. So, of course, I suppose they are the ideal source material for characters for a book. Yes, yes. As David has already said, The Killings at Badger's Drift was an immediate hit as a novel. And I think because of your background in theatre and screenplay and script writing for the radio, it did lend itself immediately to being made into a television series, but that success must have come as quite a surprise to you, a nice surprise. Uh, Yes, it was was a surprise. I I suppose what you've got to bear in mind, Red, is that obviously it was a a wonderful, positive thing to have the legendary TV producer, Betty Willingale, pick up on these books. Absolutely. But nobody really understood what a great job she was going to do. So she was just about 70, I think, when she took this on, Betty. So this was right at the end of her career. Mm. But um, because of her huge presence in the industry, Mm. anybody she asked to do anything, they would just say yes and jump on it. So she had fantastic director, fantastic director of photography, wonderful actors. You know, the the, the shots are beautiful. It's lovely to look at. I, I was very, very fortunate. Anthony Horowitz tackled the first one. Yeah. Uh, who the master, you know, oh, Anthony Horowitz. Oh, brilliant. And a very, very nice man. Very generous to others in the business. But again, anybody Betty asked, they would just say, uh, yeah, great. Including, amazingly, having just played another policeman for years and years and years and years, John Nettles. We could not believe our our luck. Do you remember when uh, you met John Nettles in the restaurant to discuss it? Oh, I I was walking six feet off the ground, you know, I really was. He was so kind and polite, you know. He's a terrific actor. I've seen him in Shakespeare, in Shrapnel as well. And I blessed my lucky star that I was that lucky. And the whole thing got off the ground because your friend Patricia Houlihan 
also another wonderful producer. She knew Betty of old, you know, both of them working class girls fought their way up from the bottom to the top in a male dominated industry. And she suggested Betty read the books. Betty loved them. Um, Boom, off it goes. And John Nettles records a wonderful foreword to the killings at Badger's Drift, where he makes it quite clear that having just played another TV detective, Bergerac, it was the last thing on his mind to become. And yet he was totally seduced by your writing. I think he writes, Tom Barnaby is a four-square, well-mannered Englishman, and I love him for that, and I had to play him. And did he fit your view of what Tom Barnaby would be like? Yes. He absolutely did. He, he, he looks right. Uh, you know, his clothes are right. Uh, and, you know, yes. Do you still have to pinch yourself when you're reminded that Midsummer Murders is shown in practically every single country in the world? Oh, and as, and it's, it, it's a massive international success. Yes. Yes, it is. I, what can I say? My, my dad was a bricklayer and my mum was a lady's maid. Well, as as the years have, have rolled on, Red, yes. so in the first instance, when Caroline's books were made into the first series, we were all incredibly excited and we thought, this has been wonderful. And then they said, OK, we'll do another season. And we went, what? Another season? There'll be more next year, and we couldn't believe it. We were over the moon. And then as the years passed, it it just seemed to keep going. And John, bless him, he stuck it for a long time. Same with Daniel Casey. Yeah. They stuck it mm. for a long time, you know. And eventually, after years and years, they wanted to do other things uh, as actors. And then we thought, oh, well, it, we've had a good run, but... Now, you know, with John going, that's the end of that. But then Anil Dudgeon, he came and we thought he's very good, but maybe the, the viewers will not take to him. And it just rolled on with him. It, it just seems like a juggernaut that I think the, the thing is, like the books, the TV series, the setting and the formula is the star. Yeah. John was wonderful. There'll never be the first series. There'll never be John and Daniel Casey again. And it was wonderful. But yeah, the setting and the formula and the peripheral characters, they are the the star of of this. Whilst there's a beautiful village and an almost absurd number of people dying, I think people are going to tune in, you know? This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. I believe, Caroline, that you actually had a part in one of the first three episodes of Midsummer Murders. I think you had some kind of walk-on. Oh, it must have been a walk-on or run-off, I think. (laughs) Yes. So Caroline wrote Death of a Hollow Man screenplay, which was an extremely Mm. tricky screenplay to write because the murder, if you remember the book, it doesn't happen for ages, and there's only one murder. So it's a although it's a a reasonably long book, for a whodunit, it's um, structurally not very helpful to turn into a screenplay. Maybe you did a walk-on in that one. Oh, yes, I do. It was just a cafe, and they met for sort of a beer. And there were a couple more tables and a couple more people uh, out having a drink or so. I think one of them was me. I sort of slid behind the counter where the beer was, and he didn't see me again till half past ten when the curtain came down. Caroline doing her Alfred Hitchcock moment. Yeah. Oh, the great babe. You don't know the half of it. Caroline, she she wrote my van into the screenplay so I'd get some money when when she did her one. 
so I, I I drove the van down to the uh, the shoot, and um, they they used it in the filming, and I got eighty quid or something. I don't know what it was, but um, <laughs> yeah, as I say, just absolutely delighted. You know, it was wonderful for me to see this huge scale of activity generated by my mother's work, mm-hmm. just to witness it. Yeah. The, the the huge lighting rigs and the, all, all the pantechnicans with the staff trucks and yeah. the whole thing. Just an amazing thing to Huge lights on long stems that you could swing about and light oh. different areas. As you say, you had a very humble upbringing, Caroline, sort of working class girl from Nuneaton in the Midlands. But it was your English teacher who opened your eyes to the joy of storytelling and made you, I suppose, want to become a writer, although a girl of your background, that was quite an unthinkable dream in the 1940s. That's, That's the word for it, you've got it there, yes. People just looked at you and threw you in the crowd and didn't know what to say. People say things like, well, if I couldn't write a letter by now, I'd be ashamed of myself. And I said, it's writing, but it's different writing for magazines and books. Uh, but people were quite bewildered. I don't know where they thought the stories came from. And you didn't forget your dream. I know you were working in a factory as your first job after leaving school at 14. That's right, it was a nylon factory. But you ran away from there to join the Women's Royal Naval Reserve? I did, I ran away to sea. (laughs) (laughs) And that was to take up a job as a writer, but that didn't turn out quite as you expected. No, I didn't realise what 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 a writer was, of course, but I didn't go into it too carefully. I felt a bit that I could do it, you know, I was in the right age and everything. I didn't see why I couldn't do it. Sure enough, they signed me on and so on. And uh, in a way, that's shrinking the imagination a bit. And it was many, many years before you did write a novel, but your theatre work and your work on TV and radio scripts kept your creative mind going. Yes, it was marvellous. It was marvellous. I gradually realised as I spent time in the business that to to make a living from something that you love so much you do it for nothing. Now that's a marvellous position to be in and that's the position I was in. And wonderful training for when the Chief Inspector Barnaby novels were picked up by the TV company. Oh, yes. Success came quite late for you, though, didn't it? Well, I couldn't work full-time and write. I don't know anyone who does. They seem to have one job and then they write in their spare time, and of course it can be done, uh, but it's... Uh, it's it's quite a job, and uh, I, I just took a deep breath, jumped in, and hoped for the best. So Caroline started writing, had the time to start writing when I was born, um, so yes. when she was 39. It's all your fault. That's it, yeah, but <laughs> but um, she was actually successful straight away. It wasn't a book that you sold, first of all, was it The Common Lot that oh, yes. did an episode on the TV? Yes. Oh, That's know. right, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, straight away, straight away she was successful. But our life would be she should have a a, a small success with with something, and then the money would run out. We'd be back on the the social, and then something else would sell, and uh, have a bit of money, and that would run out. Then we'd be back on the so, and that that sort of carried along yeah. until killings at Badger's Drift, and the success of that which would be, oh, what was that, 85, 86, 87? Yes, 87, I think. 87, when that was published. That was the last of it. And then Caroline w- was able to live off her work in a seamless way. And I certainly remember the publication of The Killings of Badger's Drift because it was 
the book that everybody wanted to read. It, yes. Yes. it did incredibly well with the Crime Writers Association. Right. Book of the Year, about two or three years after it had been published. Something I'd like to add, Red, um, so Caroline was an extremely disciplined writer. So I can remember her, as she starts at uh, nine o'clock, she'd get up, have some breakfast, and she'd just sit, and she would write. They're all written by hand, the, these books. Mm -hmm. And she she would just uh, sit and just look at the bit of paper all day. If she couldn't think of anything, she'd just sit there and look at it until she she could think of what to do. She had the, the, the kind of um, working class work ethic of a bricklayer or something you know but as mm. a writer and when she started work as a little kid i'd have to be quiet you know because she she was uh just in the world of her characters completely uh in their world yes yeah. and I'd, I'd go play outside or something you know while she worked wow. And now, of course, the books are going to find an even wider audience now that they've been made in such wonderful audiobooks. With... So. They're narrated by John Hopkins. Did either of you have anything to do with the selection of him as a narrator? What happened was the, the agent sent us through, I think we had four or six people to choose from for the the barnaby series yeah. but yeah myself and and caroline to our shame we didn't know who john hopkins was and, and then we realized that he'd played a uh, sergeant scott for two years and uh you know but i remember once the two of us heard his john nettles impression we were just sold it was like he's the guy you know yes um yes. We were offered somebody that did a much broader and more varied characterization with the different characters, who's a much more established audiobook narrator. But we went with John because we just knew his soft, velvety tones as the background narrator mm. and his absolute pin-sharp John Nettles impression. Yeah. We knew that that would be a, a wonderfully soothing uh, way for people to absorb these these audiobooks. I'm sure you're right. And he, he has done a super job, you know, I mm. think. Absolutely, absolutely. Terrific speaking voice. Yeah. Lovely. Obviously, I'm delighted that the Chief Inspector Barnaby novels have all been recorded, but I have also been told that a couple of your other standalone novels are being recorded as audiobooks oh. and for the first time ever i'm going to be able to get my hands on murder at maddingly grange oh. which is oh. pg woodhouse meets agatha christie really isn't it it's uh, wonderful it is, it is and i must say i love that book uh, uh you know i must say uh, i i just i like it you know and I think it works uh, because it's artificial, and yet I found myself believing in it. And I thought, well, I can chuck it in and see what the publisher said. And they immediately said, oh, we'll have that. So obviously I was pleased. <laughs> There's another one that you might look, like to look out for, Ed, and that's The Envy of the Stranger. So that that was the book that came immediately before the killings at Badger's Drift. And as you listen to that, you'll get a sense of Caroline learning this craft that with the next the series, she nails it so completely. But you can see the sort of depraved characters and, and the, the vulnerable and, and desperate characters. And there's a police investigation and all the sort of kernels, it's all there. You get a sort of precursor through reading this book. So that, that might be an interesting one to, to try. Yes, you're quite right. Yes. Wonderful. And I have to ask, although I suspect I know the answer already, there isn't an unpublished Chief Inspector Barnaby novel lying around in a bottom drawer anywhere waiting to be published, is there? Well, there's a few million houses that I haven't yet checked. 
but uh, certainly up and down our street, uh, if they see me coming, they're on inside. So, <laughs> yeah, what what there is is uh, uh, Caroline's last book that she worked on with another writer, but um, it's a bit of a muddle, and the publisher didn't really know what to do with it. So between us, um, I'm going to rewrite it, and Caroline's going to chip in and uh, feedback on it, and we'll see if if we can give that to, back to the publisher because it's, it's a wonderful book. But it, at the moment, it's a muddle of bits of two writers. But it's 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 different to the Chief Inspector Barnaby no novels, but I suspect it will satisfy people in a very similar way. Yes, just the similarity of the names and the places. Yeah, so Warwickshire, where it's there. So watch this space, Red. <laughs> well, you heard it here first. I certainly shall, and I hope you'll drop me a line uh, with any news on that. Now, before I let you both go, I would like to ask Caroline if you could share the books of your life with us. Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, it's the sort of book that intellectuals sneer at these days, but it was Five Children and It. Uh, they have a lot of adventures, uh, so there's a, a sort of little collection of uh, the stories uh, and the characters are roughly my age, of course. And uh, so, yes. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Oh, you see. You did mention The Mill on the Floss. Oh, well, of course, The Mill on the Floss is, is just down the road from me. And I was, believe it or not, I was 10 or 12 before I knew that George Evans was a woman. George Eliot was what Mary Ann Evans? Mary Ann Evans yeah. is her name. Yes. So the Mill on the Floss is based on uh Arbury Mill, which is yes, between right. Stockingford and Nuneaton. So that's right. Yes. So Caroline was uh born and bred uh Stockingford and Nuneaton and uh Mary Ann Evans is just the the hero to end all others for oh, a working-class girl indeed. who wants to write yes. in yes. Nuneaton, you know. Yes. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you would like to recommend to the listeners? Under the Greenwood Tree by Thomas Hardy. Yes, that's a good story. Life gets in at you uh, in some way or other, even when you're determined to keep it out. Uh, uh, when I was eight, and my mother died, and of course that affects your life like nothing else. There was mm. nothing I could do about that, of course, but uh, it's changed my life completely. People contact each other, someone they never have seen in their life, they end up perhaps having children with. Uh, you know, it's just a maelstrom, it really is. It's one of Thomas Hardy's most gentle and romantic novels, isn't it? Yes, yes it is, yes. It tells the story of uh, a romance between church musician Dick Dooley and the new school mistress Fancy Day. It's one of a, a, a sort of bag of books that stay, other books come and go. <laughs> Was it a book that you read in your 20s? Or uh, later in life? I think late, late teens, before I moved over into the hard stuff, as it were. Uh, perhaps 14, 15, something like that. And again, somewhat inspired by your English teacher at school? You know, her name was pronounced Weich. She was just marvellous. Uh, she knew my background, she knew I was motherless. And I had little bits of cake that turned up and uh, uh, she'd suggest some poem or lend me a book of her own, which I was very proud of. Did you grow up with books at home or were you reliant on Miss Weich and the local library for books? Uh, well, there, there weren't any books in the house because I suppose my dad... Uh, he was bewildered if you said, you keep your books, he doesn't know what to say. He was a labourer, working man, 
I th- I remember he read the News Chronicle. <laughs> Not quite the same as Thomas Hardy, though. Uh, a bit of a gap there, I think. <laughs> and David, is, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? I just started reading Zola's Nana, but I haven't got very far with it. And I'm just sort of drooling at the the luxury of, of what I'm about to experience. And Nana is also set in the theatre. But as I say, I, I'm just about to experience this. So I, I've got great anticipation. But it's also been a wonderful thing to relive after all this time. My mother's uh, first four Barnaby novels with, with uh, John Hopkins doing such a lovely job. Caroline and David Graham, thank you so much for sharing so many insights into the Chief Inspector Barnaby series of novels. It, it's been a real privilege and a treat for me to be able to meet one of my heroes. And your books, well, I, I've always loved them and I'm so excited about them being a new series of audio books. It's just wonderful. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome, Red. It's been a pleasure. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guests, Caroline and David Graham, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line, or check out any of the episodes in this or the previous series of My Life in Books, Here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.